Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. President Biden takes a secret trip to Ukraine on Monday as Chinese President Xi Jinping plans a visit to Moscow and Russian President Vladimir Putin suspends the New START nuclear arms control treaty with the U.S. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, editorial board member Kate Batchelder-Odell and columnist Joe Sternberg in London. Welcome to you both. President Biden slipped out of the White House at around 3.30 a.m. on Sunday, took an Air Force plane, not the usual Air Force One, to Poland after a refueling stop in Germany, and then a 10-hour train ride overnight into the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Let's listen to a bit of what he said on Monday, explaining the aid that the U.S. has sent to help Ukraine repel the Russian invasion. We've committed nearly 700 tanks and thousands of armored vehicles, 1,000 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, more than 50 advanced launch rocket systems, anti-ship and air defense systems, all defend you to defend Ukraine. And that doesn't count the other half a billion dollars we're going to be we're announcing with you today and tomorrow. That's going to be coming your way. And that's just the United States in this piece. Biden is still over in Europe in Poland. He took a little bit of a longer view on the invasion. Here's what he said this morning, our time. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. That's why together we're making sure Ukraine can defend itself. The United States has assembled a worldwide coalition of more than 50 nations to get critical weapons and supplies to the brave Ukrainian fighters on the front lines. Air defense systems, artillery, ammunition, tanks, armored vehicles. The European Union and its member states have stepped up with unprecedented commitment to Ukraine. Okay, what is your view of this trip by President Biden and the importance of having him on the ground there as a show of American support and solidarity? Well, Kyle, I think it's a good move and it was a good show of support to visit. But we didn't get much in the way of new announcements that I was hoping for. This $500 million in new aid that we've promised them includes more ammunition for their HIMARS rocket systems, which they've been using to good effect. But there were no really new capabilities announced. For instance, the Army's tactical missile system, as it's known, no announcement that we're going to teach them how to fly the F-16 and sell them planes and get their Air Force on Western aircraft. These are some of the things that have been under discussion in the administration for some time now. And I think this would have been a prime opportunity to show that the U.S., was in this for the long haul and with the objective to evict the Russians instead of coming there and announcing more of the same capabilities that we don't expect to really change the picture on the ground. Uh, We can talk more about that, but I think the picture on the ground is as bleak as this really descends into stalemate. And 
Russia is regrouping and trying to mobilize hundreds of thousands more in their cannon fodder strategy. And we are in a window here of opportunity to influence what happens on the ground. And my concern is that Biden's visit doesn't really change what's happening on the ground. And we're going to continue to see a lot of fighting and suffering without more U.S. support. One thing that's notable about Biden's visit is there's some reporting after the fact that the U.S. alerted Russia that President Biden would be in the country. Here's a quote from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. We did notify the Russians that President Biden would be traveling to Kiev. We did so some hours before his departure for deconfliction purposes. He went on to say that he wouldn't get into the Russian response or the precise nature of the U.S. message. But Joe, I think that is interesting. And I guess good to know that Moscow is still picking up the proverbial red phone. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a good sign, especially given Russia's propensity for bombing civilian targets in Ukraine to make sure that one of those would not accidentally hit the president of the United States while he was in town. I mean, what I think is interesting about the phenomenon of this visit, I mean, I completely take Kate's point that we're starting to run into trouble with kind of the nature and the pace of the military aid that we're giving. And I think that we do need a serious rethink about that. I will give President Biden some credit for going, although going quite late in the process. I mean, a a big piece of the context here is that many other European leaders, including all of the the prime movers and shakers within the European Union, have already visited some of them several times. In fact, several British prime ministers that we've had over the past year have visited. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, has visited. A bunch of prominent German politicians have visited. So it was beginning that you were starting to wonder exactly why Biden was not going, and leading American politicians had visited as well. So I think that it is a good thing that he has gone, especially because it does trigger exactly the kind of question and conversation that Kate was alluding to here, which is going to be so important for the next stage. Kate, getting into the details of that roughly $500 million aid package that President Biden announced, this is reading from the journal's write-up. It reportedly includes more ammunition, For the HIMARS rocket system, thousands more artillery rounds and mortar rounds, javelin anti-armor systems, surveillance radars, anti-armor rockets. And the journal report says this is the 32nd such package. So there is continuing backup for the systems that the U.S. has already provided. But I take your point that what an opportunity President Biden had there to go into Kiev on this train and stand up and say, that's why we and our allies have decided to send Ukraine some fighter jets. And do you have a sense that the conversation on these fighter jets is moving? I mean, that has been the pattern throughout this almost year-long war is the U.S. officials say that there's some reason that Pacific Arm can't be provided. And lo and behold, three months later, they are sending those anyway and figuring out the complications like the training. Right, Kyle. So training F-16 pilots takes time, but we know that it's possible. And we could, if we had started a year ago, we'd have F-16 pilots by now. So, and there are a number of ways that you can get creative to do that if you really wanted to, employing contractors, for instance, training them at U.S. flight schools. It's a question of political will. Now, I do think that the conversation has moved a little bit on F-16 fighter jets and that there is some prospect of 
getting the Ukrainians set up on them. One reality, Kyle, is that their Air Force fleet is taking losses. It can't be sustained with the spare parts, and they are going to need to be moved to a Western aircraft eventually. So why not get started now? I think we're seeing you know some movement in that direction, but I can't explain the delay of why, we, if we're going to do it eventually, why we continue to have these long, drawn-out public leaks and conversations about it before just getting started and getting it done. I think that it does matter too, because I think these jets could be useful even amid Russian surface-to-air missiles. Some have said the F-16s won't help because they'll be too vulnerable, but we've seen them use anti-radiation missiles, for instance, that have been very effective in innovative ways. So I do think the jets, we're seeing some movement there and uh, they could make a difference. They'll take some time, but they could really influence the battle, hopefully sooner rather than later. I was just going to add to those excellent points about the jet issue that one key political difference here might be Europe, because the trend that I have observed over the past years with a lot of these succeeding debates about weapon shipments is that certainly there was a lot of support for things like lethal aid in general, and then the tanks in Europe, not always at the level of the national leaders, especially in Germany, but certainly in terms of public opinion and you would have a splintering within the EU or NATO in Europe where some countries would be very enthusiastic about sending that aid. But I think that one problem that we are going to have to deal with on the jets is that there seems to be much more resistance to that, both on the part of the European public and political leaders, including in countries like the UK, where you're starting to hear a lot of excuses for why Britain would not send its jets. And so I think that's going to be a complication that Washington is going to have to keep in mind there. But it does seem like some members of US government are trying to put pressure on NATO allies and EU allies, even if it's not the jets, to do the basic job of hitting their 2% GDP NATO target on defense spending. And I would point to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on Friday at the Munich Security Conference He said, I welcome European commitments to supply Ukraine with weapons and capabilities. I appreciate the rhetorical shift on this continent regarding defense. But as I learned long ago as a U.S. senator, speeches are not policy. It is the concrete investments that Europe makes now and the real reforms that Europe implements now that will determine whether support for Ukraine will be sustainable and whether our alliance will come out of this crisis stronger in the long run. And Joe, let me go back to you on that because... The Journal had a recent editorial on this, and it points out that the median outlay for NATO members is 1.65% of GDP on defense. And some of these numbers are quite pitiful. Spain, 1.01%. Canada, 1.27%. Denmark, 1.39%. And I know there's been a huge debate in Germany about increasing that spending. And maybe some pledges made that are not yet being followed through on. But Joe, do you have a sense that that is starting to change as we look to going into the second year of this war? I mean, there have always been two problems with this NATO spending target, especially over here in Europe. And the first has been just getting people to agree to want to hit the target in the first place, which is sort of now the phase where you have a political recognition that they have to promise more vigorously to do that than they've done in the past. But that's a different thing from saying that it is actually going to happen. Because, you know, a lot of governments over here are facing a a lot of fiscal pressures. I mean, they're having as much trouble getting their budgets to balance as Washington is. And there is now this dawning realization that these very enthusiastic promises that they made a year ago to boost their defense spending might have to come at the expense of some of the social spending that is such an important component. of of government budgets over here. So, I mean, that's kind of the first problem. And the second is 
what are they going to spend it on? And that has been the revealing debate, especially in Germany, where this pledge, both of hitting the 2% target and creating a special 100 billion euro fund, that's billion with a B, for defense procurement, has gotten bogged down into these arguments about what actually counts as defense spending and how much of that should actually go for new equipment in Germany. The big line item is going to be the F-35s that they want to buy versus how much should go for other things like personnel costs or you know boosting military recruitment and salaries and pensions. Or some German politicians want to count foreign aid spending as part of the defense target for all of the reasons that that you could imagine that that might be appealing to the European left. So they're going to have to come up with the money first, and then they're going to have to haggle over what they want to devote it to. Hang tight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Potomac Watch from The Wall Street Journal. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. The message from Republican Mitch McConnell at the Munich Security Conference last week, I would contrast with a statement made by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a putative 2024 presidential contender on the Republican side. Here's him talking on Fox and Friends. Well, they have effectively a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. And um, these things can, can escalate. And I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. So I think it would behoove them to identify what is the strategic objective that they're trying to, to achieve. Uh, but just saying it's an open-ended blank check, uh, that is not acceptable. Okay, what do you make of this? It does seem to me that we are still a long way from the 2024 election and even the Republican primaries. And so there's a lot that could change on the ground in Ukraine that could alter people's perceptions. But it does seem to me like we are getting the beginnings of a Republican debate over foreign policy. Yeah, Kyle, we've also seen polling in the last several months show that Republicans are growing more skeptical over time and think that we may be doing too much for Ukraine. I'd say a couple things about the DeSantis criticism. The first one is that he has a point that the Biden administration is not really articulating what a strategy is. And we've been writing on our pages about the strategy being to evict other Russians and win the war. The Biden administration is not saying that, and they're not rooting their arguments for assisting Ukraine in the core U.S. national interest. I really don't want to hear the phrase rules-based international order again. We really should be talking about why, for instance, Russia is working with Iran and China to try to wage this war, and it is forming basically an axis against the United States. We've learned a lot about our enemies over the past year. I also think the blank check argument is a bit of a straw man. We've spent real money on Ukraine, but we also have managed to accomplish a lot without putting any U.S. troops in harm's way and not having any U.S. deaths. And so we are degrading an enemy power at a lower cost to the United States. The last thing I'll just get in here, Kyle, is that 
this idea, there is kind of a hobby horse about how no one knows where any of this money is going. There are multiple U.S. government IGs who have, by my last check, 64 ongoing or planned projects on oversight in Ukraine aid. Now, some of this aid is economic aid, humanitarian aid. Those kind of programs have been vulnerable to being just wasted or misused. And there will be some of that in our aid to Ukraine. And I think our aid should focus more on long-range missiles and security assistance that can win the war quickly. But this is not to say that we simply have no idea what we spent or where it's going. It is being tracked. Some of it may be misused, but there's war going on. And so some of that will be inevitable. But I just don't think we should buy into this argument that our only options are it's a blank check and we don't have a plan. There's very much an opening here for a Republican who wants to root the case for helping Ukraine in a core U.S. national interests and it being a good use of U.S. money, a good bang for your buck. To the point about the axis that may be forming here up against the United States, also recent news that Chinese leader Xi Jinping is planning to visit Moscow in recent months. And then over the weekend, Secretary of State Antony Blinken told CBS this, the concern that we have now is based on information we have that they're considering providing lethal support. We've made very clear to them that that would cause a serious problem for us and in our relationship. Unquote. And Joe, I mean, you've covered not only Europe, but also Asia. What's your view of the relationship between these two leaders and President Xi's interest in getting involved in a land war in Ukraine? Well, I mean, certainly historically, there's never been an awful lot of love lost between China and Russia before the, you know, the current government, the Soviet Union, although I think we should not read too much into that because they also have a very strong sensibility about the enemy of their enemy being their friend. And in that instance, the enemy is the U.S. I am a bit perplexed by the suggestion that now they are pushing ahead with plans for a Xi-Putin summit only because there had been a sense in the earlier phase of the war that people in Beijing were starting to think that Xi had made a mistake in early February of last year when he had a summit with Putin and declared an enduring friendship between the two countries, which was viewed as China giving its blessing for the coming Ukraine invasion. And after that, it had appeared that people were starting to think, including potentially Xi himself, that that had been a mistake, that it was not in China's interest to become embroiled in something that very clearly was looking much like a Russian loss. And so I think that we have to worry a little bit if China now might be concluding that actually there is some profit to them of continuing to support the war effort, because the real issue here has to be what lessons are Beijing extracting from this episode about what might happen if they invade Taiwan within the next few years. And so it would not be reassuring if we start getting signs that China thinks that actually Western resolve is fickle in an event like this, or that it's possible to create divisions within the Western alliance, when in fact we should be hoping that we could drive a wedge of some sort between China and Russia. And that might still be possible, but this is a sign that we are going to have to continue working at it. Finally, one last bit of breaking news this morning. At the end of a 100-minute speech, President Putin of Russia said that he was suspending the New START nuclear arms control treaty. And he, he didn't say that he was pulling out of the treaty. It, it officially expires in 2026. He also didn't say that he was going to build weapons over the cap that is applied to the U.S. or Russia. But he said that he was not going to allow inspections. And Kate, if inspections are the way to verify that the treaty is being upheld 
And the U.S. has recently also said that it doesn't think that Russia is upholding its end. How worried should people be about Putin's unilateral suspension here of the treaty that he is apparently not following anyway? Right. So when the U.S. State Department came out recently and said that the Russians were not allowing inspections, I thought GOP Senator Jim Risch put it pretty well when he said that Russia's behavior is, quote, a surprise to no one. I think they have a long history here of basically evading their commitments. The other detail about this is in addition to the inspections, the U.S. and Russia are supposed to have periodic meetings. And there was one set up and Russia just, you know, took it off the Google calendar and hasn't been willing to reschedule. So the State Department said, we don't think that they went over the warhead limits prescribed in the agreement, but since we don't have inspections, we can't say for certain. So I don't think this is a big surprise, but it is the continuation of just the collapse of the Cold War arms control architecture. And we've been writing for a long time that any nuclear arms agreement that doesn't include China is not a useful one. And so there is an opportunity here for something much better to replace it. But I think this is really not a surprise based on everything we know about Putin and Russia and their long history of trying to not follow up on their arms control commitments. Joe, we'll give you the last word. My two cents is that I'm not putting my faith in arms control agreements to keep the United States safe. I'm putting my faith in peace through strength and deterrence. And so if Russia is cheating on this treaty, then maybe it ought to be suspended and we fall back on those traditional tools of having a strong military and a military that Vladimir Putin ought to be afraid of, frankly. We should not be afraid of him as much as he is afraid of us. Well, I think that the historical context for some of these arms control agreements can really give you clues about what an event like this means. And so, I mean, the New START, which is the treaty that we're talking about now that Russia is casting to the side is, I think, the second or third generation of a line of nuclear arms control treaties going back to the 80s. And it's important to remember that during the Cold War, especially in the late 70s and into the Reagan years, these treaties were only half of the picture. This was the carrot whereas the stick was the increase in military spending in the West, things like you know, placing the Pershings in Western Europe, exerting a lot of pressure there. And then the treaties became a useful means of giving the Soviet Union a way to negotiate out of the pressure that the West was ratcheting up. And so you couldn't really separate the one from the other when you were looking at the strategy that was so successful in that era and ending the Cold War. And I think that it's worth remembering that now, too, that, I mean, certainly the New START can only be effective as a carrot if there is also a stick behind it. And I think that the stick at this moment would probably be keeping up the pressure in Ukraine by providing the Ukrainians with the means that they need to defend themselves and inflict losses on Russia so that then Russia has the incentive to come back to the negotiating table, whether that's in Ukraine directly or with some of these other arms control issues. Thank you, Joe and Kate. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, hit that subscribe button and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.